For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 446. If we think everything's got to originate with me, it's got to come from my own brain and it's got to come from nothing effectively, then we're never going to generate. When we see that there's lots of inputs that can stimulate our thing, that's how we define inspiration, by the way, the disciplined pursuit of unexpected inputs. We all want great ideas, but few actually understand how great ideas are born. Innovation is not an event, workshop, a sprint, or a hackathon. It's a result of mastering idea flow, a practice that elevates everything else you do. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast. It's the podcast it's dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. What's the point of a podcast about reading? Well, I hope to help narrow your ever-important reading list and bring you, from each author we talk to, the key insights and main ideas from the book we're diving into. Today's guest is Jeremy Utley. He's co-author, along with Perry Claibon, of a book called Idea Flow, the only business metric that matters. I'll be asking Jeremy to share why he believes there's no such thing as a creative person. Rather, it's a skill set. You've either developed it or you haven't. Why creativity is important to every organization, not just the, quote, creative ones. Some of the misconceptions that keep individuals and teams from innovating more routinely and plenty more. Later today, I'll be holding the last live class in the third iteration of my new cohort called Note Making Mastery. And I have good news. If you've missed October's live cohort, as of today, you'll be able to access all five of our sessions on demand. It is hands down the most popular course I've created and taught over the last nine or 10 years. I highly encourage you to check it out. It's Note Making Mastery, the self-paced edition. October's session wraps up officially today, but you can get it on demand. Just go to jeffbrown.me. Easy to remember. Jeffbrown.me to check it out. Again, that's Note Making Mastery. You know, and even the self-paced version is more than just a course. When you jump into the course, you also get access to my Read to Lead community, a diverse group of people that have one key thing in common, a desire for lifelong learning and professional growth. As a part of the community, you get my personal book recommendations and you get to join in on our private book discussions. There's early access to podcast episodes and even exclusive access to podcast video interviews. And you'll find conversations centered around growth and development. No surprise there. Note-taking, or what I like to call note-making, side hustles and self-employment, and creating in public. If you're passionate about any of these areas, you've found your tribe. I hope you'll join us. Wendy says, I'm really enjoying this community-based learning platform. It provides many engaging ways to connect with others and the content. Kathy, who's a part of our recent cohort, says, I'm so certain I'm in the right place with the right people. I hung up from today's call so excited for what's to come. 
Gary said, each week brings more clarity and confidence. Thank you for your consistent transparency and willingness to help each one of us. I'm so grateful that I signed up. Kathy says, this is by far the coolest thing I'm doing in my business and life right now. Want to join them? You can when you jump into the self-paced edition of Note Making Mastery. One more time, it's all at jeffbrown.me. Jeremy Utley is here to help us today with our ideas, to solve once and for all the idea problem. He is Director of Executive Education at Stanford's D-School and an adjunct professor at Stanford's School of Engineering. He is also the host of the D-School's widely popular program, Masters of Creativity. And his new book, co-written with Perry Claybon, is called Idea Flow, the only business metric that matters. Jeremy, welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast. Glad to have you here. Thanks, Jeff. Glad to be here. Well, you say at the outset, and we've actually had a couple of, of authors on recently that have asserted the same thing. I'm thinking of a book called How Creativity uh, Rules the World by Maria Brito, mm. uh, where, where, you, where you talk about how there's really no such thing as a creative person. Rather, it's, it's a skill set. You've either uh, developed the skill set or you haven't. So how do we turn creativity in, into, a, into a daily practice? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And I think for a lot of people, if they don't realize that it's a muscle that they can develop like any other, then they just fail to attend to it. But very simply, the best definition I've ever heard of creativity is a seventh comes from a seventh grader in Ohio who once said, uh, creativity is doing more than the first thing you think of. And her teacher had asked for definitions of creativity. She put that up on a board and her teacher loved it so much. She sent it to the director of K-12 education at, at Stanford D school. And she shared that with me and she, because she knows it's something I believe so profoundly. Mm. The reason it's such a, uh, an insightful definition besides its simplicity is it speaks to something that's very difficult for human beings to do, which is think of more than one answer to a question. Mm or think of more than one solution to a problem. So very simply, when you say, how can we exercise our creativity? I would say every problem is an opportunity for creativity insofar as what that means is generating more than one solution before you select. And we actually advocate doing that at least once on a daily basis. We called it doing an idea quota, where every day you take something that you're looking for the right answer to, which few of us are doing math problems, so there is no one right answer, right? right? And instead of looking for the right answer, try generating lots of answers. And to us, this kind of gets to that creative mindset. Mm. I think it was, I'm probably going to get this wrong. I think it was Feynman who talked about writing down your 12 favorite problems. Mm, that's great. When you're consuming other content, other people's work, books, podcasts, articles on the web, uh, videos, et cetera, to think about consuming those through that lens of, of how are these things I'm consuming going to help me solve one of those, one of those problems? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's another, it's another great strategy. One of the, the uh, assignments that students at Stanford have been given since the 1960s came from Bob McKim. He's a progenitor of the Stanford design program. And one of the things he regularly assigned students was what he called keeping a bug list. Mm. And this is long before computer programming, you know, entered the, the kind of common parlance. What he meant was keep a list of the things that bug you, write them down because those are the seeds of innovation. And so, yeah, so I agree, just like Feynman, just like Bob McKim, keeping a list of things that bother you or problems that you're thinking about solving, creativity is making these connections and it's the art of solving problems. And if you become aware of problems that could be solved, if you become aware of connections that could be made, 
all of a sudden you find possibilities for it. You may not have called it creativity before, but I mean, just by way of example, my little sister played volleyball in high school. You know, we go to the grocery store. We're not on the volleyball court. Her coach isn't around, but we go to the grocery store and my mom asks her to grab a jug of milk from the refrigerator, right? She goes to the refrigerator. You know what she does, right? She takes the jug out and on the way to the cart, she does curls, right? (laughs) Because to every athlete, you know, every jug of milk is a dumbbell, right? And to someone who wants to exercise that creative muscle, that's the athletic mindset, right? We're always exercising. And if I had said, Rachel, what are you doing? Your coach isn't here. She'd say, what's wrong with you? Like, that doesn't mean I can't be getting stronger, right? (laughs) And the same is true of creativity. When you become aware that the, the flexing the muscle of generating more solutions or ideas or answers than you think you need is a creative act, you start to see, wow, what am I going to title this podcast episode? How about we try five titles before we select one, right? What am I going to put in the subject line of this next email I'm sending? How about we try five, right? All of a sudden, there's opportunities just like doing a dumbbell curl with a gallon of milk to build that muscle. And what you find is that muscle then can be used when you need to call on your creativity later. You're used to this this practice of generating more volume than you think you need, which is at its core, a creative act. And to not curl that gallon of milk is a is a missed opportunity for sure. <laughs> Huge, right? Why yeah. not? <laughs> and by the way, if I'm wrong about Feynman being the author of the 12 favorite problems, I'll, I'll correct myself in the show notes. Uh, Please, eventually. no, and, and let me know. I'd love to know. <laughs> that sort of begs my next question. Why do you think creativity is important to every organization, not just the creative ones? Because I'm, I'm assuming over the years, you get pushback from leaders who suggest, well, that's, that's not us. That's not the kind of company we are. You know, it's funny. I would say leaders, I don't get pushback from, you know, I think IBM did a survey of like 1500 CEOs mm-hmm. saying what's the most important leadership trait uh, for the next generation. And creativity was unsurprisingly the most important. Oh, right? wow. So I, I think as far as leaders are concerned, no leader doubts the value of creativity. I do think that there are people inside organizations who either think one, I'm not creative or two, I'm not in the creative part of the organization or three. Right our organization isn't creative. So, you know, whereas there are other organizations in our industry that are, but we aren't, or there's other departments in the company that are creative, but ours isn't, or there are other people in the company who are creative, but I'm not. I've seen all, you know, permutations of that. But to me, the striking thing actually, Jeff, is that leaders value creativity. They value innovation. And it's it's almost reached a fever pitch in terms of hype. It's a very hyped topic, innovation. Mm -hmm. You can't find a you know, annual report that doesn't in, in, in mention innovation as a core pillar, right? And yet it remains undernourished and underdeveloped as an individual and organizational capability. Most people approach innovation as a moment or an event, like, a, mm-hmm. like they have a hackathon or they have a sprint or they have a mm-hmm. brainstorm, right? And then they relegate all their creative acting to that moment, to that event. And what we say is if creativity and innovation is a practice, as we were talking about earlier, and if you aren't mm-hmm. regularly attending to the muscle, you know, you're going to show up to the, to the, to the sprint with Cheeto stains on your jumper, right? Like you're not, you haven't stretched, you haven't done exercise, you know, no wonder you pull a hammy when you do a sprint, you mm-hmm. haven't been training, right? And so if, if the event is the only time someone exercises their creativity, and, and the muscle of innovation, to me, it's totally unsurprising that the results there are lackluster. 
And related to that, you talk about this concept of, and I love this phrase, uh, I'm probably going to steal it at some point. I'll, I'll give you credit, I promise. Please, please. Uh, diversifying your portfolio of perspectives. And when I hear that, the first thing I think of is something we were talking about uh, a little bit ago. I can't remember if it was before we started the recording or not. But uh, when I hear that phrase, I think about you know the books I read, the podcasts I listen to, the videos I watch, TED Talks, et cetera, the articles I read on the web. What does it mean to you? to diversify your perspectives? How, do, how does that sort of manifest itself? First of all, there's a bunch of different ways. And in one of the chapters of the book, we really go through a bunch of different levers, really. Almost someone can conduct a self-assessment and say, what's natural to me in terms of diversification strategies and where maybe have I never thought about looking? Um, so there's a lot of ways to do it. The, the, the fundamental thing is creativity is a function of input, not output, right? When we think of creativity, we often think of the work of art, right? Or, you know, <laughs> wrongly associated with artistic mm. exclusively, but take the work of art, right? We, we, and we see that painting is creative. One of the big things that, you know, artists know, for example, is creativity is actually about input. It's actually about seeking what they call inspiration. You know, in the corporate world, when we think of inspiration, we think of a cheesy poster that's got like a, you know, <laughs> salmon swimming into a grizzly's mouth and it says courage, you know, but, <laughs> but designers and artists and, and performers think about inspiration as a, you know, I taught a class with a hip hop artist named Lecrae and we were giving our students an assignment to go get inspired in the world. And I could see on their faces, this look of, you know, I recognize myself in it because 10 years earlier, I, as a, you know, former management consultant, spreadsheet junkie, MBA had married a fashion designer and my fashion designer wife kept mood boards and went on inspiration trips. And I'm like, where do you put that in a spreadsheet? You know, I don't, I don't know what to do with inspiration, but being married to her and working at the design Institute, I started seeing the value of inputs to drive fresh thinking. And when I saw these students, you know, 10 years later, giving us this blank stare, I saw myself mm. and I said to Lecrae, I said, what do you think about inspiration? And he said something I'll never forget. He said, inspiration's a discipline. And I realized in that moment, for these students, it's not even on their radar as a possibility, let alone a routine that they regularly engage. And so that's kind of the mm -hmm. fundamental thing, first of all, is seeking input as a way to drive different output. Now we get to this idea of perspectives. It's one of many ways to seek input, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But when you think about the diversity of perspectives that you're bringing to bear on problems, you know, one of my favorite examples and one of the practices that I've actually personally adopted is Ben Franklin's Junto. So I don't know if you're familiar with Franklin's Junto, but you look at a guy like Ben Franklin, one of the most accomplished, not only authors and inventors, but also statesmen in colonial America, right? He invented the lightning rod and the, he mapped the Gulf Stream and he came up with the idea of public libraries and fire departments and the Continental Congress, right? You go, how does a guy like that have so many, if I just give me bifocals and I'd say my life was well lived, right? Just one thing. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things he did was every week for 30 years, he met with his Junto. It's a leather aprons club, a, a group of artisans from other industries who he would regularly meet with. And they had a list of questions they would review. Things like, has anyone moved to Philadelphia that we ought to know and why? Has anyone's business fallen into disrepute recently? And for what reason? Are there advances in the sciences that have bearing on our businesses and, and trade, right? And on and on and on. They would ask all these questions. And you realize, oh, contrast that with my daily life. And I'm sitting and with my team, working on the same problems, interacting with the same people. I, my you know, anecdotal straw poll of most professionals is they spend 90 
99% of their time with the same five person team all the time. Mm. And so, which is to say the, 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 the level of diversity of perspectives that are, that can influence their thinking is exceptionally low. And so one of the things that I've done is I actually have created a couple of Juntos. I've got a group of CEOs that I meet with on a monthly basis. And I've got a group mm. of peers that I meet with on a monthly basis. And we talk about questions related to exploration, related to innovation and growth, et cetera. And for me, carving out, deliberately carving out that space like Ben Franklin did mm. on a regular basis, not to just get beyond my team, but beyond my organization and beyond my industry, I found it to be an indispensable uh, source of inspiration and source of fresh thinking. Yeah, I, I do something similar, calling it mastermind groups. I'm a part of, of several, lead one of my own, and then participate uh, in, in some others. You know, to your point, in, in school, we were taught, right, uh, not to look at someone else's paper during a, a test or copy someone else's work. And that's, that's good advice considering, you know, the context. But unfortunately, I think, Jeremy, as adults, that's led many of us to believe that anything we create has to be 100%, you know, our own idea mm-hmm. and 100% coming from us. Uh, it has to be completely original to be truly ours. Otherwise, we've cheated or we've, we've glanced at somebody else's paper. And I think nothing could be further from the truth. I think that's impossible. I think the actual yes. truth is all creativity is remixed. All yes. of it's borrowed. And in, in any given situation, you don't only want to, to draw on your own best thinking at that moment. Right. That, that's, if that's all you're, you're leaning on, um, you're not going to go very far. You, you need and you want to be able to draw on accumulated Wisdom, not not just of, of yourself, but but others. You need to call upon all these examples and models that you found from across your life experience. You know, one of the things you're making me think of, Jeff, is there's a mistaken belief that an idea is this mystical thing. You know, if 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 I ask you to define idea or ask your listeners to define idea so that my five-year-old daughter could understand it. It's a worthy, you know, I hear that five-year-old girls ask more questions than any person on the planet. And that's, I can say it's true. I took her on a walk last night. We do a monthly date night and I took her on a walk last night. She didn't stop talking from the time we left the front door until, you know, it's just, and daddy and daddy, and, you know, it's just great. Try to define idea. It's actually really hard to do. And if mm. you think about it as original from nothing, you're in trouble. And even cognitively, neurologically, because an idea our brain can't make something from nothing. It doesn't happen. It's impossible. It's cognitively, neurologically impossible. What our brain does and what when we get this sensation of idea is we make a connection between two things that we hadn't connected before. And when you realize that an idea is just a connection, all of a sudden the the pressure goes down, right? Mm Because because you can see connections. As long as ideas are this mystical thing that I can't really even define, it's really hard to generate them, right? I had a student who's an entrepreneur who's a very enterprising young man from India. And he pulled me aside one day after class. He said, you have no idea what a relief it is to hear that ideas are just connections mm. because I can, I can make connections. I never realized that. And to me, you know, getting back to your idea about cheating off of a test or something, if we think everything's got to originate with me, it's got to come from my own brain and it's got to come from nothing effectively then we're never going to generate. When we see that there's lots of inputs that can stimulate our thing, that's how we define inspiration, by the way, the disciplined pursuit of unexpected input. And when we see that what we need is unexpected input, it changes the way we interact with the world and we interact with collaborators and our teams and our customers, et cetera. And we recognize that our ideas don't come from nowhere. They come from somewhere. And the problem is we got to get somewhere to find them. Yeah. 
I'd be curious to get your take on just the last couple of years and the impact and the changes the world has gone through with regard to COVID and how just so many of us working remotely these days, uh, how that's impacted creativity, would you say? You know, it's, I think it's a, we've squandered an incredible opportunity, to mm. be honest with you. And the reason I say that is this, our offices, I don't believe are really ever the place where creativity thrived. You know, if you think about the brainstorm, you know, and your conference room where you used to have a brainstorm, nobody's longing for that conference room. People dread it. You know, they roll their eyes. So I, I think this notion of that creativity is something that thrives in the office and, you know, is, has kind of wilted on the vine because we're at home. I don't buy it. I think that we have some outdated expectations and norms, anachronistic even norms and modes of behavior that are that are keeping us from being creative. But you know, it's fascinating. Just take, for example, this idea of input and inspiration, right? If you and I are in the same conference room, we both look to our right, we see the same thing. It's probably a beige, sterile wall, you know, devoid of inspiration or meaning. You know, we look to our left, we see the same thing, more of the same, right? But you and I here, if you look to your right and I look to my right, I'm looking at, you know, uh, Father and Son, a book by Thomas Watson Jr. about IBM. What are you looking at, right? Mm. You're looking at something totally different. And we can be having a conversation and then literally the inputs that are available to us beyond this box Mm. are incredible. What (laughs) if we both took a walk for five minutes? What if we both just turned off our video and and silenced our mics and thought for five (laughs) minutes? Which is to say there's profoundly moving and effective techniques available literally at our fingertips and at our at the tips of our toes in an, in a remote environment but what's keeping us from them we go well i got to have my camera on i got to be responding to every slack message as quickly as possible we've got these pavlovian notifications coming <laughs> keeping us doing low leverage you know highly efficient very poorly in terms of effective kind of work mm. and to me that's why i say we've squandered an opportunity mm. i feel that remote work has a potential to be an incredible boon to creativity but mm. we have to change our definitions of what work is i, I talked to uh, helen cup a couple of weeks ago who who co-wrote a book she's an executive at uh, slack by the way you mentioned slack she co-wrote mm. a book called how the future works mm. Uh, subtitle is leading flexible teams to do the best work of their lives. And, and, and with regard to brainstorming, she mentioned this idea that you made me think of called brain writing. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and, the, and the basic difference is and maybe you use a tool like Slack with your team to, 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 to pull this off. You certainly do it a lot of other ways, but you spend the time leading up to the meeting, sharing publicly your ideas Rather than going to the meeting and using that time, okay, we're going to brainstorm. Now you come to the meeting having already seen everybody else's ideas and the meeting is to specifically discuss the already publicized ideas. And I just thought that was that little twist was was a huge uh, game changer. Well, there's a lot of research that suggests that the most effective way to generate ideas is actually to modulate between individual work and group work. Mm-hmm. And yet most of the time we think of it as a group activity, yeah. and which we're, we're all, you know, and introverts rejoice. I don't think about it as only a group activity. I think <laughs> we wrongly think of it as a group activity. The best thing to do, actually, maybe if I were to build on what she's suggested with brainwriting, which I really, really like, we recommend a, kind of call it a four-step process. 
not to be overly prescriptive, but step one, give people the prompt or the question and give them time to consider it individually prior to a meeting, right? So that's the individual time. Mm. Step two, have a meeting that's dedicated to exploring and building on rather than critiquing or evaluating, but building on in a divergent kind of a mode, one another's ideas. Okay. So that's like typical brainstorm, but it's been fed by individual time first. But then step three is Ari Kruglowski established that we have a longing for what's called cognitive closure. And it's highly psychologically distressing for us to leave something unresolved, right? So we get to the end of a brainstorm. You know what we do? We choose (laughs) because who wants to leave the room with indecision? And yet there's some fascinating research that suggests that there's, there's a, that most people's expectation, it's called the creative cliff illusion. Most people's expectation Mm -hmm. is that their creativity will degrade over time. And they assume that it's something, it's like a fixed quantity that gets spent, right? And the, the, the reason it's called a cliff is because if you ask most people to map their creativity over time in regards to any particular challenge, or question or problem, they, it hits kind of a precipitous drop at some point in time. That's their expectation. Mm. But the truth is these researchers have found that, you know, actually it doesn't degrade over time. And in fact, in a lot of ways, creativity improves. And furthermore, if you want to hit a creative ramp, expect better ideas to keep coming. <laughs> and so to me, the way to kind mm. of hit a creative ramp in this four-step process is step three, instead of choosing, you tell people, we're not going to select until our next meeting, which is step four. But between now and then, I'd like for everybody to think about what we've come up with today and see if you can't come up with any better ideas between now and this meeting next week. Mm. Almost always the best ideas come from that time that people spent away after they were inspired by being together. Mm. And then when you come back together to decide, you have all the stuff that you already generated in step two, plus potentially a handful of even better ideas that could never have been inspired had you not decided to wait to make a decision. I love that. Uh, with with great advice like that, you can be prescriptive all day long as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> well, use it and see. That's the key. Use it and see if it works. Yeah. Well, share some of your advice that you offer leaders in the book to, to better identify and recruit and retain people who have the potential to maybe be your star creators on, on the team. You know, one of the things that leaders can do that is so simple but it's a profound shift because it's a it's a shift in expectations from their team is instead of being the answer gal or the answer guy you know a lot of times teams come to the leader looking for the answer what what we suggest is leaders be the approach gal or the approach guy and you can advocate for a, an approach without advocating for the answer and what you do when you advocate for an approach is you empower the team to discover an answer that probably you didn't even know but it, it all comes down to, is my identity one as I have the answers mm. or is my identity one as I equip someone with an approach? And a really simple thing, like I learned this from Astro Teller, who's the captain of Google X, uh, Google's uh, moonshot factory. Mm. I, I was asking him about this idea of volume. Perhaps we'll get to the idea of volume in a little bit. But he mentioned um, anytime a team comes to him with an idea, he asks, I want to see five. And I said, wow. So what happens? He said, well, now there's kind of a reputation in the organization. People know that I want five ideas. So they often bring me dummy ideas. They often say, (laughs) you know, I've got this one idea I like, and then four other dummies. But he said, what they don't realize is many times that one of their dummy ideas is better than their actual idea. Mm. And the point is that to me, it's a leadership strategy of, again, answer versus approach. If I'm the answer guys, a team brings me the idea. It's my job to evaluate it. If a team brings me an idea and I'm an approach guy, I say, what else have you considered? 
Are there any other ways to solve this problem? Is this the right problem to solve? Mm. Right. I'm not giving him an answer. I'm not the, I'm not the judge and jury, but I'm interrogating the approach and I'm providing guidance because likely the team hasn't discovered the best answer. And even more likely, the team isn't even solving the right problem. And so I can kind of get stuck in this loop of helping teams evaluate the wrong answer to the wrong problem, or I can set them free and unleash their creative potential by orienting them around more solutions to better problems. You have to have, have to be willing to have enough bad ideas if you're ever going to find the good ones. And, and you talk a bit about quantity over yeah. quality. That's one of the core concepts of the book. What most people fail to realize is that the variable that's most highly correlated with the quality of your ideas is the quantity of your ideas. I think Linus Pauling, he's the only individual in history to win the Nobel Prize twice as an individual. He said, someone asked him once, how do you, and he almost won a third, by the way, he was neck and neck with Watson and Crick in discovering the double helix structure of DNA. Mm. And if he had done that, he would have won their Nobel as well. But someone asked him, how do you have so many good ideas? And he said, simply to have a good idea, you have to have a lot of ideas. <laughs> the, mm. My question is, what's a lot? Yeah. That actually is an enormously important question. And for most people, as I survey rooms, y'all go around the country talking about these concepts, the mode answer I get is somewhere between 20 and 50. That's mm. what people go. That's a lot of ideas to get to good as defined as kind of a commercial breakthrough. Mm. And we actually have empirical research on this at Stanford. And so it's not hypothesizing. We know empirically the number's closer to 2000 than mm. 20, right? Mm. And so, and it varies, mileage varies by, by field, right? If you look at pharmaceutical discovery, the number's more like 10,000. You know, when James Dyson was developing mm. the bagless vacuum, he made 5,000 prototypes of that. The head of the Taco Bell food lab said she tried over 2000 different versions of the Doritos Locos taco shell before she got it right. Okay. Oh. Which is to say mileage varies, but the number is huge. When you say a lot, when Seth Godin says you have to be willing to have enough bad ideas, I wonder what's enough to most people. And mm. I think for most people enough is like somewhere on the order of 10 or 20, and then you get your good one. And, you know, I was talking with right. a, another podcaster recently, who's an author. He said he tries to write a thousand words a day. And he said, it often happens that 750 words in, he goes, oh, this is the big idea. And then he's <laughs> off for another 1,500 or 2,000 words in 20 minutes, right? <laughs> but the point is, wow, I get 750 words in before, I, before there's like something that, I, that can kind of hit the, hit the gas. That's mm -hmm. amazing. And most people want to wait until they have that 751st word to ever put pen to paper. Yes, yes. I, I, to me, I, I say it to my... To my cohort members all the time, the regionally network folks, writing is thinking. If you're trying to think without that being a part of the process, you're not, you're, you're not doing the thinking, the level of thinking you, you think you are. <laughs> for mm, sure. I love that. You, you say in the book too, that getting stuck, and I, was, I, I felt relieved to hear this, is not necessarily a bad thing. Why is getting stuck, Jeremy, a crucial part of the, of the creative process in your opinion? To say it differently, when are you not stuck? You're not <laughs> stuck when you don't care. Mm. The reason that we get stuck on a problem is usually because we care deeply. And that is so important. If you don't care, don't bother. Mm. But if you do care, recognize you're going to hit roadblocks. You're going to get stuck. That's fine. But what happens and what's amazing about getting stuck is it triggers the subconscious to work overtime. And we find ourselves, it, it, you know, it's called the Zignarik effect after Bluma Zignarik, a Russian mm. psychologist who found that if a problem is unresolved, our working memory continues to mull it over. That's why people say the history of innovation is the bed, the bus, and the bathtub. 
right? <laughs> it's because the things we care about, the things we're stuck on, our mind tends to come back to mm. in unexpected times and unexpected ways. And so getting stuck is critical, not because like we're gluttons for punishment and we, we like getting stuck, but because one, it reveals you care. And two, it's the state at which all of the powers of your being are brought to bear on the solution. Well, I've got a, a couple of questions not directly related to your book that I want to squeeze in here before we run out of time. But before I do that, Jeremy, anything else from the book you want to make sure we know? You talked about this concept of volume earlier that we didn't get to maybe that or something else you want to make sure we walk away with. You know, I think that there's a lot of mythology around innovation. There's a lot of uh, misunderstanding. If you ask people, you know, how do you get a breakthrough or tell me about your last breakthrough? Mm-hmm. Most people think of it more like a break in. It catches them off guard. It surprises them. They're the victim, right? Mm-hmm. And our belief and our experience is you can be the perpetrator of a breakthrough. You just need a new set of tools. You need a new method. Mm-hmm. Methods beat muses. And so what we have, what we've tried to compile is a systematic method for breakthrough thinking. And it doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it automatic, but you can dramatically bend the odds in your favor by knowing and doing some very simple things. And our goal is that, as you said earlier, I mean, I was talking to my mom the other day because she, she wanted to read an advanced copy of the book. She's, and she's not a business person. And she goes, Jeremy, this book isn't a business book. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it's relevant to me. I mean, this I've been using this stuff. It's really useful. I said, I know, mom, but you have to have like a target audience. You can't, it can't be for everybody. But she goes, but it is for everybody. You know? uh, and I go, thank you, mom. I, I appreciate that. Uh, shout out to my mom if she's listening. But the point is, the point is these tools are, you know, the, and, and actually we have a bonus chapter on our website, uh, ideaflow.design called How to Think Like Bezos and Jobs. And the point of that mm. is what makes exceptional breakthrough thinkers different is how they think. It's not their genes. It's not their DNA. It's not that they have something the rest of us don't. They think different as the old Apple ad said, right? And you can too. And so our goal is to equip everyone with some, these aren't secrets or they aren't, they aren't intended to be secrets. They, sh- they are accessible mindsets and tools everyone can use in their area where they're facing problems and challenges to increase their likelihood of a breakthrough. Mm, that is good stuff. You reminded me of, of yet another writer. I get James Clear's weekly uh, email. He's, of course, the author of Atomic Habits. and Love his stuff. Yeah. And the most recent one, he talks about two competing truths, you know, two, two things that, that, that seem on opposite ends of the spectrum, but, but both can be true at the same time. And his two competing truths in, in this week's email was the more prepared person usually wins. I'm a big fan of preparation, as you probably realize, as evidenced by the list of questions and ideas I sent you prior to this conversation. I never yes. want to approach one of these interviews without being prepared. But the competing truth is you get credit for action, not preparation. Uh, and I love that. And, and, and I was reminded of that as, 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 you were, as you were speaking. That's great. Let me ask you, I hadn't planned on asking you this, but I'm curious to know how you got connected with Lecrae. Um, let's see. He had an album that he wanted to reimagine how the album was going to drop. And he reached out to the D school and we did some collaboration with him. I wasn't involved in that project, but I think he fell in love with the environment. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think he really resonated with the way we approach problem solving. And he kind of tossed it out there. You know, if you guys ever are interested in doing a class, I'd love to do a class. And someone who was involved in those initial conversations said, oh, our friend Jeremy is the guy. You know, he, (laughs) I I love teaching new classes with new collaborators. And, and so they put us in touch and, um, 
he and another a fellow Stanford instructor named Seamus U. Hart mm-hmm. and another a couple of other amazing people, Brandon Middleton, amazing, amazing folks came together to run this experimental course. It was a lot of fun. Oh, and did you say the name of the course? It's called Controlling the Narrative. It was about equipping uh, minority youth with media tools to tell their own stories. Mm, fascinating. Yeah, I heard that name and I'm like, oh, that's a name I know. I want to know more about that. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Um, over the course of, of your career, Jeremy, I would imagine you've read your share of books. Uh, I think uh, good writers are often avid readers. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're on an island, let's say, and you had to to pick two or three to take with you, what would those books likely be? Maybe they're books that you find yourself recommending often to other people. Well, well, so that so that's an interesting question because if I were going to an island, I would want to bring a book I haven't read yet. Mm-hmm. So, are you asking me books I haven't read yet that I want to read, or books that I have re- that I would recommend to you to take on your island? Yes, yes. Thanks for that clarification. I asked that question in a way I've never asked it before, and I didn't realize that conflict there, but that you just pointed out. But <laughs> yeah, I'm looking for something you've read before that you would recommend to someone else for their desert island experience. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm looking at my bookshelf now. It's, it's a little absurd, um, but a few of my favorites, well, you mentioned Richard Feynman. I love his memoir. Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. I could, I actually, that would be one that I would bring on my desert island, even though I've read it just because it's so, he's great. I mean, he's really incredible. So that one for sure. Um, I love a book called The Idea Factory by John Gertner, which is a history of Bell Labs. It's just an incredible mm. history of, you know, the folks who invented so much of the technology that we use to this day, pioneers, um, Nobel Prize winners, incredible people. Mm. Um, and then I also, I love uh, Shoe Dog, Phil Knight's mm. book. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of that and actually Michael Dell's book. I've got it sitting next to it. Play nice, but when I feel like both of those are almost thrillers in Mm. a sense, Mm -hmm. they've got a real dramatic tension and, uh, and and a narrative art to them that I love, you know, a lot of, a lot of books, I feel they lack that narrative structure that makes it so compelling, but I couldn't put put either of those books down. Uh, Shoe Dog, one of my brother's favorite books. I have not read that yet, but he's recommended it to me. Oh, you've got to. You'll love it. You'll love it. I've got it on Audible. I just haven't made made time for it yet. I have a lot of books I've purchased that I've not gotten around to read. Yes. yes. Another hallmark of a, of a writer. (laughs) I want to ask you a question with regard to personal knowledge management. I love to ask this question of authors in particular writers. And and this goes back to something I was telling you about before the, the cohort that I lead called note making mastery. It's all about getting your head wrapped around how to manage your personal knowledge. And it's a four-phase process for us. It's, it's note collection, it's note connection and organization, it's note crystallization, being good at developing and distilling your notes and adding your yeah. own thoughts and ideas to them. Yeah. And the last part of the process is then creating with those notes. I'd just be curious to know what might some of your processes be for any one or more of those four phases, collection and capture, connection, organization, crystallization, creation? You know, for me, probably, and actually credit goes to Seth Godin for this, but I read once he said, you should blog every day. Mm. And I started doing that. I literally put down the book that he, that I had bought of his, I put it down, Googled how to start a blog and started blogging that day. Wow. And you know, that's been years. Um, and you know, so I, now I've got my own, uh, my blog is on my own site. It's called jeremyoutley.design. And every day 
I write a blog post about uh, innovation, insights related to discovery, to creativity, to problem solving, leadership, et cetera. Mm. And to me, I would say that is a really useful practice for processing the things I'm learning because you need an outlet of some kind, I find. Just like nature abhors a vacuum, a blog abhors like a lack of knowledge, you know? <laughs> and so I, I, but I would say for me, my bias and everybody has a different bias. I love learning so much. I love reading so much that if I didn't have like a forcing function of every day, I need to push something live. I would just read all the time. Mm. I just read my free time. And I, and I think I would just get, you know, I would just get, what is it? Hydrocephalus. Mm. My head just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the act of actually sharing the a ritual around sharing, I think protects me from my worst impulses, which is I love, I'm a voracious reader, but the, the simple lessons. And as you said, connections, the blog is the place where those connections get made. They get, mm. it, it gets made and that synthesis happens because I try to write, you know, in, in a coherent manner where each post is kind of an individually useful piece, right. but then it's linked to other stuff. And so for me, that, that practice of blogging is really, I mean, I've gotten, you know, 200 post-its on my desk here. I would be embarrassed to even show you, it's, it's <laughs> but they're all kind of these fragments of things. And then mm. I grab a couple of them and I'll write a post and I have a conversation with you and I'll write a post and, mm. and that writing process is the way that I process my learning. Well, you just answered a question I was going to ask about next with the, with the post-it notes, I think. And by the way, I can, I can vouch for Jeremy because as we've been talking, I've seen him. I couldn't tell what he was writing on, but I can see him taking notes uh, yeah. as, we're, oh, as yeah. we're talking yeah. back and forth. <laughs> totally. But my next question was going to be about, you know, I, you know your writing uh, is a way to, to, to get that knowledge out. You're not just consuming Right. And then moving on to the next thing you're going to consume, which I think a lot of people, too many people do. And, and I encourage people to listen to this podcast to make sure that you don't just stop with consuming these conversations and maybe reading the books that you, you do something with that information. Otherwise, what's the point of having mm -hmm. consumed that information? But I was going to assume that when you write those posts, you're probably not starting oftentimes with a blank page. You're probably not starting with a blank screen because in your case, you've got this myriad of, of, of post-it notes or, or whatever else at your right. disposal. You've already done a lot of the work. Now it's just a matter of putting that, those thoughts together in a cohesive narrative, right? Yeah. And the big thing is I think that I found is um, striking when inspiration strikes. You know, like there, mm -hmm. there's no time, like a moment that you feel a connection, that you become aware of a connection to, to capture that it's, and the half-life of inspiration is exceptionally short. It's exceedingly fleeting. And so for me, what I want to do is I want to remove as much friction as possible from the moment of inspiration to the moment of action. Mm. Well, I've enjoyed this so much. And I think it's so relevant to, to what I'm doing over in the, the read to lead network um, that uh, I'm going to be, I've just decided this in the moment. Uh, it's just, it's a perk for those in the network. I'm going to be publishing this conversation uh, to them before I publish it as a podcast, just to give them early access to it. Cause I think it's so relevant to what we're, what we're doing. That's great. Jeremy's book again, written with Perry Playbon, idea flow, the only business metric that matters. And I encourage you to pick it up right now. It's out as of today, October 25th, the day that this uh, conversation is being released. So get it. Don't hesitate. Jeremy, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Jeff. You know, I really love that Jeremy shared some older books for us to check out. It reminded me of something I read over the weekend. It says this, most people read the same books that everyone else has read, not necessarily for the ideas, but for the social reward of being able to talk about them with others. 
Reading the same thing as everyone else is only going to put the same ideas in your head that everyone else has. If you want new ideas, read old books. Thanks, Jeremy. Your recommendations are definitely some older books that I want to check out. I've listed all those on the show notes page for this episode. You can find that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 446 for episode 446. You'll also find their ways to connect with Jeremy should you choose. Slated for next week is my conversation with the founder of Grubhub, a guy named Mike Evans, as we dig into his book called Hangry, A Startup Journey. That's next time right here on the Read to Lead podcast. Well, that's going to do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.